45. I just heard Whatever this. else you can say about this war, let me just make one point. George Bush is not fighting this like Vietnam. Whatever the, we don't need to refight the whole Saddam history of Vietnam. Maybe that's the danger of Saddam. But, but it's not going to happen. Let me take it's a not call going to happen. From this Park is going to be a two-month war, not a Park Hill. Year it's war. going to be two months, ahead, not six. We don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. The read we get on the people of Iraq is there's no question but what they want to get rid of Saddam Hussein, and they will welcome as liberators the United States when we come to do that. The White House hopes to call for a vote on the deadline resolution early next week. If it passes, then by March 17th, as a senior official, Saddam Hussein will finally be out of final opportunities. But even if it doesn't pass, the president has left no doubt that he's ready to go to war. This is Fox News and Fox News Channel continuing coverage of the campaign which now has begun to liberate and disarm Iraq. We see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Um, and they are beautiful pictures of, uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over to this airfield. Video is black and white. Good morning. That is what freedom looks like. That's the red, white, and blue. Well, one of my favorite things in the 16 years I've been here at Fox News is watching bombs drop on bad guys. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I have some experience in that exact part of Afghanistan, going back to December 2000. Why do we go to war? What are the justifications? Are the ramifications ever fully examined? War is an expensive venture both in terms of lives lost and wealth destroyed. But for some, it is highly lucrative. The unfortunate part about the war industry is that, unlike a free market, it truly is a zero-sum game, where only one party can benefit at the cost of the other. The people who lose out are those caught in the crossfire. Their families, infrastructure, social progress, and accumulated wealth, all of which can be wiped out in a matter of days. And to the victor go the spoils, the weapons and vehicle manufacturers, the politicians who get to sit on the boards of said companies while lobbying for them in government, and the entity of the government itself, which is able to forward its financial and geopolitical interests in destabilized regions, as it fills power vacuums either through its own institutions or proxies. There are even more benefactors in war, however, apart from the usual suspects. It's the citizens themselves who are employed domestically by the war industry and Wall Street firms whose stocks skyrocket when war is being raged. And of course, not to mention the corporate media. Since the days of newspapers being sold by a kid on the street corner to modern social media, the information given to you has always been presented in a way to grab your attention, with eye-popping headlines and sensational editorializing. In many ways, you aren't just given a set of facts, but a story with facts embedded into it, or even a story with cherry-picked facts to support it. And because of the nature of our psychology, Stories tend to be more compelling to us than the dry, boring facts. Of course, this makes us easily manipulable, if not utterly pliable. Should the story be compelling enough? 
And the more compelling that a story is, the more resources are devoted to it. As more resources are devoted, institutions will become incentivized to capitalize on these compelling narratives. Most good stories need three key ingredients, a conflict, a hero, and a villain. If you can find a way to craft a drama where a problem that a large number of people care about is caused by a villain and can only be solved by the hero defeating said villain, you have just discovered one of the most powerful tools in persuading large numbers of people to carry water for the cause. René Girard's mimetic theory of the scapegoat exemplifies this beautifully, in that when we can identify the perceived villain, he can and should be sacrificed. Otherwise, the community cannot experience peace or achieve unity. We hear this in Marxian slogans like, quote, eat the rich, or sentiments of xenophobia against immigrants due to imagined economic damage. News media is everywhere and always trying to exploit these kinds of attitudes, these hero and villain narratives, for the sole purpose of driving traffic and getting eyeballs. The game is to distract you, enrage you, and engage your amygdala through the use of perfectly tailored scapegoat storytelling, all the while they may not even have a dog in the fight. They just want you to have a dog in the fight. When you're invested, they make money. It should come as no surprise that many news outlets see some of their best financial times during armed conflicts in war. One stark example of this being when CNN popularized a 24-hour news cycle covering the first Gulf War in 1990. CNN, which had previously been relatively obscure for the 10 years of its existence prior, suddenly shot up to the top of the ratings for cable news and has been a juggernaut ever since. If it wasn't for the war, it's hard to say if they would have even survived as a company. War and conflict became ingrained in the business model and seems to be no less true today for the broadcaster than it was 30 years ago. Of course, it isn't only CNN who engages in this type of war profiteering. It would seem all the big players do it, and it definitely predates the network itself. Conflict sells, and the whole world is buying. From gang wars to violent protests, environmental alarmism, pandemics and drug scares, fear porn is pervasive and insidious, spreading through the culture like a mind virus with few cures or treatments. If all you did was consume mainstream print or televised media, you may be incorrectly led to believe that the state of the planet is in peril and is on the brink of catastrophe, when in fact humanity is in its most peaceful, least violent, and prosperous epoch of known history. It is nearly impossible to overstate this point, yet ill-informed cynical zombies will scream that the sky is falling day and night without reprieve. Author and pundit Michael Malice once said of the corporate press, quote, they will give you the facts, but not the truth, end quote. This point is especially poignant when it comes to overseas conflicts. The corporate media has an obscene history of ill-researched, fantastically overstated, and downright misleading claims leveled against foreign scapegoats in the interest of regime change, armed conflict, and propping up pro-West governments. They will rarely engage in outright deceptions, though that's not unheard of, but rather give half 
truths, intentionally omitting important details, and failing to provide proper context, which might change the nature of any given military action. For the next several minutes, I'm going to give a number of anecdotes which demonstrate this type of violent and vulgar behavior to help us to understand just how pernicious the media cover is in regards to the foreign policy of Western powers and the symbiotic relationship between the corporate media establishment and the state. September 8th, 2012. Pulitzer Prize winner Judith Miller and Michael Gordon publish an article for the New York Times called, quote, U.S. says Hussein intensifies quest for A-bomb parts, end quote. Many attribute this story to influencing the Bush administration to invade Iraq. Within a year of publication, the Times was forced to write a retraction to many of the uncorroborated and unverified claims particularly around a key witness who claimed to have worked for the Iraqi government chemical weapons program and on supposed parts for atomic bombs that were being stockpiled. As per usual, by the time the retraction was issued, the damage had already been done. Miller's numerous stories covering the Iraq war and Islamic terrorism contained so many egregious errors she was eventually forced to resign from the New York Times in 2005. November 26, 2002. The New York Times runs an opinion piece entitled, quote, An Iraq War Won't Destabilize the Middle East, end quote. In it, the author, Ruel Mark Garrett, opined that, quote, Most regimes in the area are too stable, end quote, specifically referencing former Egyptian president Hosni Mubarak who would later be ousted during the 2011 Egyptian Revolution, only to be replaced by fundamentalist Muslim Brotherhood President Mohamed Morsi. Of course, this would be the least of the blunders which pundits got fantastically wrong in regards to the Iraq War. This article, and many like it, ranging from Fox News to NPR, did almost nothing to challenge the U.S. State Department's demonstrably false claims that Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, which turned out to be an incredibly weak alibi for the invasion and ensuing occupation. It was so weak, in fact, the government had to change the narrative from there's WMDs in Iraq to the Iraqi people want us to liberate them. And the major news networks ate it up like lapdogs, with images of tanks rolling into Baghdad and Tomahawk missiles lighting up the night sky. It was a ratings dream. June 17, 2011. The BBC publishes an article on Hillary Clinton's justification for an aggressive war in Libya entitled, quote, Clinton condemns rape as a weapon of war, end quote. In it, Clinton, then U.S. Secretary of State, claims that she had received reports that the Gaddafi government was, quote, weaponizing rape and had an official policy of rape encouraged by Gaddafi, end quote. This story was run by numerous major media outlets and was based largely off of the testimony of a single woman, Iman al-Obidi, who claimed to be gang-raped by a number of soldiers. The International Criminal Court allegedly has a report outlining the accusations of the use of rape against rebels. However, 
at the time of publishing this episode, I have not been able to locate such a report. Of the dozens of media articles on this story, not one has linked to a copy of the report. There was no other evidence that the Gaddafi government ever engaged in such a policy, and it was never corroborated by any other testimonies in any media outlet. The story was driven almost entirely by the t- claims of Miss Al Obidi. This is not to say that there was or wasn't widespread sexual assaults committed by soldiers, as is common in civil wars. There is, however, no substantive evidence that this was any kind of official policy or even encouraged by the heads of the Libyan state. It would also seem to be inconsistent in Gaddafi's general governing style, wherein he routinely implemented gender equality and equal pay laws in Libya during his reign. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Just want to remind you to make sure you subscribe so you can hear all the new episodes. You can also follow me on my socials, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Peaceful Way Podcast. If you want to email me, you can email me at thepeacefulwaypodcast at gmail.com. You can also support the show financially uh, at patreon.com forward slash thepeacefulway. Thanks and enjoy the rest of this episode. April 4, 2017. The New York Times runs a story titled, quote, Worst Chemical Attack in Years in Syria, U.S. Blames Assad, end quote. The evidence provided for the allegation that Assad was responsible for the 2017 attacks were a number of eyewitness accounts. However, nothing substantial has been unearthed to support this claim and the Pentagon has since walked these claims back, saying the eyewitness accounts in question were not reliable. Nearly a year later, when asked about Assad using chemical weapons, the former U.S. Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, stated these exact words, quote, no evidence, end quote. Russia and Syria asserted that the attacks were carried out by an insurgent group as a false flag, a claim that is largely unproven as well. However, Russian and Syrian authorities immediately offered American and NATO officials to inspect the Shayrat airbase, the source of the alleged attacks, which the Americans then declined and went on to bomb the airbase anyway. Despite the fact that there were allegedly chemical weapons at this base, which could have been lethal to local inhabitants when ignited by U.S. airstrikes. If they were so concerned about Assad using chemical weapons on innocents, why would they recklessly destroy a possibly large deposit of said weapons with potentially incalculable collateral damage? To this day, nobody has discovered any chemical weapons, either in the chemicals themselves or a delivery system, to be in the possession of the Assad government despite their numerous offers for third parties to inspect their facilities. Much of the video and photographic footage of the victims was released by a group called the Uzbek Jihadis, notorious for making staged videos of faked attacks. The Times article states, quote, But only the Syrian military had the ability and the motive to carry out an aerial attack like the one that struck the rebel-held town of Khan Shikun. End quote. 
This is a statement that runs almost entirely against the facts as we know them. Yes, the Syrian military has an air force. They do not have chemical weapons. And as far as I'm concerned, one is innocent until proven guilty. Furthermore, the accusation of having a motive makes almost no sense at all, as the Syrian government at the time was on the precipice of ending the civil war and knew full well the entire international community would be starkly opposed to them as well as possibly provoking a retaliatory attack from the most powerful military on the planet. If anything, they have been highly disincentivized to cause undue harm to civilians, much less use chemical weapons and risk losing a hard-fought victory due to an American intervention. In a rare moment indeed, CNN aired a tone of positivity for Trump after this unauthorized act of war. Anchor Fareed Zakaria was gushing over this action and even went so far as to say, and I quote, I think Donald Trump just became president of the United States. End quote. January 2, 2020. President Donald Trump orders the assassination and unauthorized act of war against Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. This attack was carried out on Iraqi sovereign soil without Iraqi government permission or knowledge. In response to the attack, the Iraqi Prime Minister said, quote, We condemn, in the strongest terms, the assassination by U.S. forces of Iraqi and Iranian figures who were symbols of the victory against Daesh, also known as ISIS. End quote. Let it be noted that Soleimani was instrumental in unifying Kurdish and Shia militias to defeat ISIS in northern Iraq in 2014, with the backing of U.S. airstrikes. The White House claimed the justification for assassination was because he was apparently plotting, quote, an imminent and sinister attack, end quote, against American occupying forces. However, no evidence of the accusation against Soleimani was ever provided. Moreover, the execution was largely based on an unproven assertion that days earlier, Soleimani carried out an attack against the K-1 airbase near Kirkuk, which inadvertently killed one American contractor. The question remains, though. Why would the Iraqi Prime Minister defend Soleimani and then claim he was a guest in Iraq at the time if the general was indeed attacking Iraqi government military bases? These and many more questions have remained unanswered and largely unasked by almost all major news outlets. June 26, 2020 the New York Times publishes an article with the following headline, Russia secretly offered Afghan militants bounties to kill U.S. troop, intelligence says. Within hours, the story went viral, with pressure mounting against President Trump for apparently being, quote, aware of these bounties, end quote, and doing nothing about it. The implication being that Trump should escalate tensions with Russia. 
The Kremlin, Taliban, and White House vehemently deny this ever happened. Well, the National Security Council, the Pentagon, and the State Department, and CIA declined to comment. The piece goes on to point out how Trump has been, quote, soft on Russia by bringing up, though rather irrelevantly, that Trump had, quote, strongly suggested that he believed Mr. Putin's denial that Russia interfered in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, end quote. Obviously, they are trying to make a weak and somewhat conspiratorial connection between an insinuation made by Trump to his lackadaisical attitude towards the alleged bounties. The piece continues, stating, quote, 20 Americans were killed in combat in Afghanistan in 2019, but it was not clear which killings were under suspicion, end quote. It then goes on to say that this information was gathered, in part, through interrogation of Afghan militants and criminals by undisclosed means with zero details on how the Russians supposedly carried out these operations, what kind of communications they might have used, or how the militants were paid. As a result of this article, many politicians and those in the media class are calling for an escalation of tensions with the Kremlin via sanctions. The sources for this story were anonymous, with zero corroborating evidence or documentation of any kind. In the examples that I've used here, one may think that I am somehow under the illusion that the U.S. is some kind of unique evil with its media class being a cheerleader for war and regime change. Well, let me dispel that illusion. The U.S. is the tip of the iceberg, and in a sense, the spiritual leader of the Western war machine. But they are by no means alone. I distinctly remember as a child in 1998, when my country, Canada, was entering into the Kosovo War in the former Yugoslavia. There were nightly reports and headlines saying something to the effect of Canada at war, straight across the screens, often with patriotic homages which seemed to invoke a sense of duty to engage in the conflict. Even at the age of nine, I could not wrap my head around why in the world we would be going to Eastern Europe to bomb people that never attacked us at the behest of NATO. I was similarly confused when Canada, Britain, and France joined America to prosecute the Afghanistan war, or when Canada and many European countries helped to displace Gaddafi in Libya, Assad in Syria, or lended support to Saudi Arabia in their ongoing genocide against Yemen. It is only now, in retrospect, that I realize that the military-industrial complex is not strictly an American phenomenon, but largely a Western one. Though, let it not be said that non-Western powers don't have their own military-industrial complexes. Nations like Germany, Canada, South Korea, the Ukraine, and so on, are like parasites who have war industries of their own, yet rely on U.S. military hegemony for their own security and financial interests, all the while hypocritically scoffing at American interventionism 
which they themselves benefit from and invest in. The glue that ties it all together is the media establishment, which obfuscates, distracts, dismisses, and downright lies. They act as a PR firm for the government, propping up so-called national security experts and former intelligence officials as talking heads, often giving them full-time positions at their networks and treating them as authorities on matters of foreign policy, regardless of their long history of failed foreign policy exploits. Dissident voices often become marginalized and declared beyond the pale for daring to contradict the scapegoat storytelling, as is the case for journalists like Jeremy Scahill, Glenn Greenwald, and Julian Assange, who departed from disproven stories like the McCarthyite Russiagate conspiracy theory. It is in the interest of news networks to relentlessly present to you the next boogeyman who could end life as we know it, to keep you in fear, anger, or both, because it keeps you forever dependent on them to have an unimpeded pipeline to your mind and wallet.